Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. This is going to be a fun episode because it's about a controversial subject. It's an interview with Moses Ochoneo, who is an African history professor at Vanderbilt University. He wrote an article about on failed states and the pitfalls of Western commentary. In our one-hour discussion, we talk about why he wrote the article and what Nigeria is really like, Obama's tough love for Africa, the danger of a single story, what about racist critics, he talks about infantilizing Africans and denying them their agency. He talks about going where the facts lead you. I talk about the six causes of Africa's current condition and whether balance is always good. Should we just blame the system? We talk about corruption in Sweden as well as Africa. We talk about capital outflows, the moral consequences of corruption, liberal guilt. You can watch the interview on YouTube or enjoy it here. You wrote a fantastic article written on the ironically named Africa is a country uh, website, and it's on failed states and the pitfalls of Western commentary. And I just want to read the very first sentence just to kind of set the tone. You said, why did a fairly obvious observation by two white American scholars about Nigeria being a failed state cause controversy? Great question. So you go about answering that. What inspired you? Was it just that thing that was like the seminal moment that you said, okay, I really have to write an article about this when these two white American scholars said, hey, Nigeria is a failed state. And then suddenly there was an eruption on Twitter and everywhere else saying, hey, what are you talking about? I mean, that's a great, great way to start off uh, this conversation. But that's uh, that was that was part of it. That was definitely part of it. My, I had this visceral reaction um, to the article itself, but also to the reaction that it generated, you know, amongst Nigerians, um, Nigerians on online. Um, they, 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 you know, it, it set off a debate. Um, it's heated conversations. The government, uh, the Nigerian government reacted in a very uh, over-the-top kind of way, went after the authors of the article. Um, you know, they, they reacted with, with threats. They reacted with bluster. They reacted with, um, you know, the usual misinformation. They tried to cast doubt on the authenticity and the credibility of the article. And I thought to myself, you know, this... This article is not controversial at all, you know, <laughs> from, you know, from the perspective of Nigerians, because uh, I'm Nigerian myself. I grew up in the country. I talk to people in Nigeria every day, multiple times a day. And I talk to multiple people. Uh, my family lives there. I go there myself sometimes uh, three times a year. I research the country. I write books on the country. Uh, so apart from being there, I, I consider myself an expert. Um, from what I do know, uh, the observations in the article uh, shouldn't uh, have been controversial at all because this is what Nigerians have been saying for many years, that their country is falling apart. It's been torn apart by these uh, insurgencies all over the country, but also, but especially in the northern part of the country. Uh, and, and everyone, you know, by now, most people in the world knows, uh, know about Boko Haram. But it's not just Boko Haram. It's also uh, armed herdsmen who are, you know, on rampage, killing people, sacking communities. Nigeria has, uh, you know, you know, 
has a lot of uh, people who are internally displaced, right, within their own borders. And of course, we have a, Nigeria has a lot of refugees in Cameroon, the neighboring countries of Cameroon, Chad, and Niger. So I thought th- th- I thought this were commonplace knowledge. And you know, these two scholars, two white American scholars, uh, coming to the conclusion that Nigeria was a failed state shouldn't have been that controversial. So, but that that was not the case. So that was one of the triggers for the article, certainly. But the other trigger was that I had been uh, concerned for for many years uh, about how. Westerners, especially Western commentators and scholars, engage with the continent of Africa, but also with Nigeria in particular, because I'm from there. And so this this kind of brought it all together for me, if you like. Yeah. Got it. Now, at the same time, it's not necessarily the fact that these were necessarily white American who American scholars who were saying this. For instance, there was a hit song that was recently made and I can't remember the name of the artist, but I'm sure you know him. This is Nigeria. You know what I'm talking about. Yes, that video, that uh, (laughs) viral video, that uh, music video, yes. Right. And how did the government react when that video came out? Um, You know, it's uh, the usual predictable reaction of, uh, you know, countering it with uh, a series of, uh, you know, propaganda about what's positive and what's right about the country. Uh, but of course, that misses the point because there's no country that is totally bad. No one is saying that there aren't any positives in Nigeria and that uh, everything is bad in the country. Uh, so that's that kind of uh, skirts the issue. But that's that's the kind of thing that Nigerians are used to uh, hearing from their government when uh, articles like this are written, when songs like the one that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, those songs like that, like those like that, like that one, are produced and are released. But, but the thing is, you know, we have to be mindful of the fact that the songs mirror reality. Articles are written about reality. You know, there's a saying that, that scholars analyze the world as it is, not as we wish it to be, right? So these two scholars, they were, I think, you know, in, in a sense, they were trying to represent and explain and uh, analyze conditions that are real, that are on the ground, that people are grappling with, that people have to, Nigerians have to navigate on a daily basis. Uh, sometimes as a matter of life and death, you know. So, so for me, I, I, I thought I thought one of the remark one of the remarkable things about this article and the reaction that it generated was precisely because the government and the Nigerian people are not used to seeing such candor, you know, and such such uh, blunt truth telling in commentaries written by Westerners about Africa and about Nigeria. They are not used to that style. They are used to more, a more diplomatic, more uh, vanished, more embellished version of truth-telling. Sometimes they are even they are even more used to escapism, as I like to call it, which is, uh, you know, this idea that, you know, oh, let's not, let's, not, let's not make things worse than they already are. Let's try to not, you know, uh, convey the sense of how bad things are because then, you know, that exacerbates the issue. And so there is that anxiety on the part of Westerners in terms of representing, accurately representing what goes on in in Africa, in many countries, especially in Nigeria. And so Nigerians have gotten used to that style of narrative about their country. So I, I believe that that's one of the reasons that this article generated the reaction that it did. Right. And for those who don't know about that song, uh, This Is Nigeria, I forgot to mention that it goes about critiquing a lot of the 
problems and issues that Nigeria has and kind of making fun of it and making light of it and just painting a picture of one version of reality of that Nigerians face every day. And the government didn't like the negative tone of that video in a similar sense that these two uh, scholars, American scholars, also kind of took a very poignant and harsh look at the continent. And that's, you're right, and I agree with you that recently there has people are kind of slow. Westerners are slow to criticize Nigeria because they don't want to fall back on the tired stereotype that we have of Africa of being a troubled place. And people are cognizant of that. And so now the pendulum has swung so much the other way. And however, you had Barack Obama, as you mentioned, did give some tough criticism, tough love to African leaders. And what do you think about the reaction to that? Well, that was an interesting moment as well. Uh, when Obama, Obama was president, uh, it actually happened twice during his visit to Ghana and uh, his address during his address a few, a few years later to the African Union. Uh, and on both occasions, yes, he was uh, seen as... Uh, uh, as, as not being self-aware, uh, he was being as uh, ahistorical, meaning not taking ac into account uh, some of the historical injuries that uh, the West uh, has inflicted on Africa and of uh, just blaming Africa for its wars and blaming African leadership especially, but not doing a more holistic, more nuanced uh, analysis of the, of the situation. Uh, he was seen as someone who was, yes, you know, tough talking. He was talking down someone who was talking down on, to Africa, someone who was... Paternalistic? Yeah, in a, in a very paternalistic way, in a very avuncular way, rather than someone who was trying to partner with Africa and trying to work with African leadership uh, to improve conditions on the, on, the, on the continent. And it brought back certain imagery and certain rhetorical recollections of uh, colonial times, you know. And that's the comparison that some of the critics were drawing, that uh, he talked in the mode of a colonial village uh, uh, kind of headmaster, you know, scolding uh, the pupils and, and scolding the colonized African peoples for what was wrong with them and and, and also being chronically uh, unaware of their own complicity in the in the crisis. So that was the, the criticism. At the, time. at the same time, there were Africans who, who, who said, wait a moment, wait, wait, just wait a minute, step back a little bit, because this, this is an overreaction to Obama's criticism. And this is more of a, an instinctive, Almost predictable reaction, and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't portray Africans in good light in the sense that it, sh it kind of gives the impression that Africans are, lack the capacity for self critique, that Africans lack the capacity uh, to absorb criticism and to take criticisms no matter who the messenger is and no matter the tone and the rhetoric, but boil it down to its essential to the to the to the crux to the message and to take that criticism and make try to make situations on the ground better. So those those were the dual uh, reactions, if you like, to Obama's uh, commentary, uh, and that reaction for me was uh, those, that that two those two reactions were very interesting because I think you 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 pointed out earlier that now you have Africans themselves who are looking for commentary from the West that mirrors what they feel about their country that mirrors what they feel about the leadership, the leadership failures in their country. They are tired of the diplomatic platitudes, right? 
that characterize much of Western commentary. They don't want to be to come and be told, oh, just hold on and to be given a, a hopeful message, just work harder, persevere, be patient, things are going to get better. The West didn't uh, become what it has become technologically and economically overnight. Uh, just, just they, they don't want those kinds of platitudes anymore. So you have, you have, you have to, for Westerners, it presents a problem for Westerners who engage with Africa because it creates a dilemma, right? You know, on the one hand, you don't want to fall into the old colonial trope uh, of uh, painting everything in negative terms and saying Africa is a basket case of chaos and tragedy, is the home of diseases and poverty and AIDS, and, and perpetuate that stereotype and that, that trope of African dysfunction. But on the other hand, you have Africans, millions and hundreds of millions of them, who are yearning for their leaders, leaders to be held accountable, who are yearning for the gravity of the situations in their countries to be put on the world stage for people to know, who are yearning for people outside of Africa to know what actually goes on, what kind of leadership failures that go on in their countries. So it, it presents a dilemma whereby the Western commentator, the Western scholar is put in a particularly dicey situation and has to navigate these two pressures. On the one hand, trying not to perpetuate the colonial trope of Africa as, uh, as, as, as a cradle of dysfunction, Africa as a pathological center of uh, crises, you know, and Africa, on the other hand, as, you know, uh, a place that has real problems that need real attention, that need real attention, that need to be, the problems need to be engaged with, the problems need to be dealt with. So that, that has become this dilemma, and, and I try to bring it out, bring out the dilemma in the article that I wrote. Yeah, and I will put a link to your article on the show notes as well. And it also reminds me a lot, and in fact, you mentioned uh, the Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Adichie, Adichie, I think that's who pronounced her last name, and she did a famous and viral TED Talk about the danger of a single story, and that we sometimes gravitate to one extreme or the other when trying to describe any place, actually, not just Africa. Uh, but in the case of Africa, for instance, you've got this tired old trope that you talked about of being a dysfunctional place. And in the meantime, what's almost equally irritating <laughs> and frustrating is, for example, there was a book that came out recently. Uh, it's called The Brightest Continent and decided to take almost everything in Africa and paint it in a wonderful light, even to the point of taking Nigerian scammers, uh, email scammers, and depicting them as entrepreneurs and innovators <laughs> and, and things like that. I'm like, oh, wait a second. We've gone a little bit too far on the hope, <laughs> on, the, on the positive rosy-eyed lens. And so it's so difficult, I think, especially for outsiders, to pl play that balance of nuance. And what do you recommend? Like, I'm writing this book about Africa, and believe me, I'm biting my tongue so often. I'm like, oh, that goes over too much on this side, too much on that side. And it's like you can't win. And that's the frustrating thing. It feels like, especially when you're an outsider, you just cannot win when you're writing about Africa. You're either too much on that side, too rosy, or you're too depressive and negative. What can one do? 
That's a, that's a great question. I think that just goes to the, uh, the heart of the matter right there, that uh, question. And, and I think that Chimamanda's uh, viral uh, video criticizing the Western single story on Africa has done a lot to, I think, enlighten Westerners and to alert them to the dangers, right, of reducing this complex continent of multiple ethnicities and religions and cultures to and, and multiple phenomena to just a few terrible things, a few negative things, you know, a few uh, poverty and disease and uh, economic meltdowns and so on and, so, and, and, and suffering and so on and so forth. But I think, like you rightly said, uh, I think because probably because of that uh, that video and some other commentary that reinforce uh, reinforce that video, you now have Westerners who are just you know hesitant to right. portray things the way that they are because they don't want to be accused of perpetuating that quote and unquote single story. They don't want to be accused of reducing uh, Africa and its uh, realities to some of these uh, stereotypical narratives of dysfunction. Right, uh, and not only are, that, but they're also, yeah. on top of it, there's the the extra insult that can be lobbed on them to being called a racist, to, to exactly. add insult to the injury. I mean, it's like, it's not exactly. just you're perpetuating stereotypes of this, but then you're on, on top of it, it's you're, you're being a racist. So then Absolutely. that really forces white people to tiptoe across yeah. this thing and err to the side of positivism and right. just blaming the foreigners for everything. You know, it's the Chinese fault. It's the Arabs. It's the Europeans. It's the Americans. We're all, exactly. and, and, it, and it goes down that path so much to the yeah. point that the Africans are blameless victims always. And exactly. at that point I'm like, wait, whoa, whoa, that's too much on that side. <laughs> yeah. So that's the problem that, that because of that whole awareness now, it, it all, it, I, I, my sense is that I'm, you know, obviously I'm not a white Westerner, but I can impersonate one in this moment. <laughs> and I can say that if I were one, if I were one, I would have that whole discourse playing around my head every time that I like, I want to speak about Africa, every time that I want to write about Africa, uh, because now it has become so, you know, that's that's the age we live in, that it has circulated so much that I think every Westerner who comments on Africa is aware of that. So it has pushed people to the other side, just like you said, so that now. Uh, it's too positive. It's too rosy. Uh, Africans are always portrayed as the victims. Now we have we've we've gone from you know blaming everything on Africans and almost like as a genetic deficiency, right? Almost as this this congenital failure on the part of Africans. We've gone from that now to the other extreme of infantilizing Africans and saying Africans almost denying them agency, denying them responsibility, denying them the, even their humanity. Because the way that I like to teach when I teach American students about Africa, is that Africans are just like any other people. They have agency, they are humans. So they, they are capable of good and they are capable of bad. They are bad people and they are good people. They are good leaders and they are bad leaders. They are, you know, and so on. They are complex in ways that other people are complex. So if uh, Europe produced Hitler, Africa is very well capable of producing an Idi Amin and, and Abacha and other dictators and other, you know, um, infamous figure, historical figures. Uh, and I think that we should, when we deal with Africa, we should have that sense that we should go where the information leads us. We should go where, because you talked earlier about how do we uh, resolve that dilemma? How do we navigate that? 
Go where the information leads you. Go where the truth leads you. Go where your research leads you. Uh, and, and let the chips fall where they may. You can't please everyone. Your commentary is not going to make everyone happy. But that's the whole point of commentary, right? Because it's a perspective in time. And it's, it's founded on your own experiential and research and informational resources that you've gathered. And unless someone actually questions your source and questions your research and questions your experience, uh, which they shouldn't be able to do if you do your research well, you have traveled all around the continent, you have your materials, you have your experiences, much of it uh, is documented in, in audiovisual forms, in written forms. So you, you, you have your facts. And so you go where the facts lead you. And if it leads you in the direction of being a little critical and be, even being negative, so be it. Uh, that, that's Africa. There are, there are negatives on the continent and there are positives as well. And so I think that, that that's where the balancing needs to occur so that we are not allowing an, these anxieties about unfairly perpetrating certain stereotypes about Africa to keep us from representing African realities in all their, their nuances, in all their complexities. Uh, and, and, and so that we don't uh, get emotionally blackmailed by potential criticism or by actually existing criticisms into abandoning the path of truth telling because we owe it very much. That's what I like to say. We owe it very much to Africans on the ground, especially Africans who are not vocal, who are not visible, who are not the elites, who are not the leaders, the regular Africans who live on the continent and have to navigate these dysfunctions and crises on a daily basis. We owe it to them to tell their truths, to tell their stories, to bring their experiences to the world's attention. And, you know, and, and I think that's a moral responsibility that we carry. And if we allow ourselves to fall into the trap of caring too much about you know, telling uh, truth about Africa, then I think we abandon that moral responsibility to the regular Africans, right, who are marginalized from their government, who are marginalized from, who are not visible. And, and I think that's where that's what we need to be mindful of. You know, uh, Chimamanda has done a great job, but I, I like to say that that perspective was necessary at that time, but it is incomplete. It is incomplete because we also need to encourage Western commentators on Africa uh, to tell the truth. But more importantly, not just to tell the truth, but to align themselves, right, with the sufferings, with the experiences, and with the perspectives of regular Africans. They shouldn't be seduced into telling stories that the elites of Africa, the leaders of Africa, feed to them. They shouldn't allow their connections to the elites and to the leaders of Africans, uh, people in their networks, for instance, uh, the perspective of those people to color and to dictate the tenor and the trajectory of their stories. Okay, so that, that would be my uh, perspective on it. But was she discouraging that? I mean, I feel that you said at a time, Chimamanda's message kind of worked and was necessary. Yes. What part of her message do you feel is a bit outdated, Professor? Well, I think that, you know, there's a, the, the whole concept of the single story. It's, it's an important framing device mm -hmm. uh, or rhetorical device to dramatize the problem that she was analyzing. And, and it's an important problem. It's a, it's a historical problem, too. It, it didn't just emerge from nowhere. The single story it has, a, as I pointed out in the article, it has its colonial reference points and colonial versions, right, you know. There's a book that talks about that, which I referenced in the article. So there's a colonial version of it, this idea of Mary Africa, this idea of Africans as, 
you know, happy children. Africans are never faced by circumstances. No matter what they go through, they're always happy. They're always playing like children. They're always jumping around. They could be surrounded by war and famine and, and suffering. Oh, and they'll still be happy, right? Unconditionally happy African. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's, an, uh, it's a long historical trope. So it was necessary for her to launch that critique. But I think there is a flip side also to the idea of the single story. Why this reductive Western story, reducing everything in Africa to the trope of suffering. And there's also the flip side of, like you rightly said earlier, I think you alluded to this earlier on, of uh, presenting everything in Africa in very positive terms and, and refusing to acknowledge uh, culpabilities, but also refusing to acknowledge even that problems exist, <laughs> let alone finding <laughs> the culprit, right? Let, let alone blaming it on somebody. And, and I think that's where... I, 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 that's where that's 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 the main point of my intervention in that article to say that there's a flip side. There's the other side of the spectrum that we need to look at, which is overly rosy, overly positive Western uh, portrayals of uh, Africa that do not accord with the truth, with the reality on the ground. I understand that, and I agree with you. But I would also think, and I would also think that Chimamanda would also agree with you. In other words. I don't think that when she says there's a danger of single story, a negative story, she would also probably, if she were in this conversation right now, she would probably say, you're right, Professor. There's also danger of a single positive story. In other words, I think that her, at least the way I interpret it, is that she doesn't think the solution is let's talk only rosy things about Africa. I think her, the message that at least I got from her, her TED Talk is that we need to have some level of balance and so, which I think is what you're saying as well. Yeah. No, no, you're right. You're right. So, yeah. so I, I, that at least that was my interpretation. So I think maybe some people heard her message and say, okay, the solution is just rosy stories. So that way it kind of balances out. And I don't think she was necessarily saying that. Maybe she was saying, okay, yes, we need a lot more rosy stories. But if we go all rosy, that's bad too. <laughs> no, so, no, you're right. You're right. So, you're so right. I think right. there's that. But let me, I'm going to push you on an issue that might, might uh, on an issue that I've been struggling with. And I want to bounce the idea off of you and for you to tell me, Professor, if there is a little bit of truth in it or if it's defensible. And this is what I'm, and, this, and let me lay out the thesis. And I would love to hear your feedback, Professor Ochonu. That in the past, we have blamed Africa's problems and challenges, which of course we recognize they have, just like every continent has. They have perhaps a little bit more so than other continents, but there are five typical reasons that we have blamed. Jared Diamond started off with guns, germs, and steel as pointing geography. And I'm sure you're familiar with that argument, correct? Basically, Africa was cursed with lousy geography, and that explains a lot of the dysfunction today. Number two, slavery. Not much need to be said about that, but you know, 11 million plus Africans taken away from the continent caused all sorts of repercussions down the road. Number three, colonialism. Obvious uh, problem there as well. Uh, number four, racism. That is kind of an existing thing that even today uh, can impede its progress. Up until a few years ago, those were the reasons why everybody blamed. And all those things were, in a sense, outside of Africa, out of their control. 
And then finally, since the problems, many problems persisted, people started to throw in a fifth reason, which is African leaders were also at fault. And that became, so nowadays we have these five factors that are are people blaming Africa's problems on these five things. But here's where I'm going to throw a monkey wrench into the whole thing. And I want to see what you think. I would say there's a sixth reason that nobody likes to talk about. And that is the African on the street, the regular everyday African bears some amount of responsibility for the state of affairs of the Mm. continent. And that Mm. I think is a very toxic idea for many because people have always depicted Africans as being victims. And I mean, the average person on the street. And so the narrative of saying Idi Amin and other leaders, even uh, blaming them, you're still blaming the rich people, just like we can blame Elon Musk for problems or we can blame Jeff Bezos for all our problems. You're still attacking these high, wealthy people. And so it keeps up that narrative. And nobody likes to point the finger at the everyday person. But in my travels to all 54 African countries, Professor, I found that just the person selling mangoes on the street or selling tomatoes would either have a crooked scale or would uh, the the people who were repairing my car, they would tell me, you know, pick up your car tomorrow. And it didn't wasn't ready tomorrow. It wasn't ready the next week. It wasn't ready the next month. It took sometimes months to repair my car, weeks. And even though they would constantly say, there's a level of distrust amongst the Africans themselves that I've never seen in the 130 countries, 123 countries that I've been to. I've never seen countries that sometimes distrust each other among themselves. And again, I got this narrative from my wife, uh, who's Cameroonian. And so there's something endemic. And again, not the entire African continent. It's, it's hard to generalize. But if we have to generalize there, I think it would be wrong to not place blame and credit to the African peoples themselves, just like we should we can't give the uh, the issues of America is not 100 percent the, you know, because of Joe Biden or Obama or whoever, the people themselves are to blame for why America has the problems it has. And the Europeans are to blame the average person on the street. So I would just extend that. So that's my thesis. And now I turn it over to you to get some feedback. No, no, it's, it's, it's certainly an interesting uh, thesis and uh, one that's, has been debated uh, in the field of African studies for decades, really. So, uh, I, I guess I'll, I guess it comes down to the what what African scholars basically understand in two ways. One is the structural argument for African dysfunction, and the other one, uh, obviously, is the, uh, uh, the 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 argument or the problem of individual agency, right? So. Uh, so, but, but before I, I actually give my perspective on it, because I do have, I've thought about it, I've reflected on this question quite a lot. Um, this is a question that I've debated with my students actually on a number of occasions. So it's interesting that you that you raised it. But uh, let me go back to the previous thing about you know where I situate myself um, in relation to Chimamanda, because I think that's a very critical point. To it becomes a very mechanical exercise, right? When someone is, um, when a commentator uh, on Africa is simply trying to accomplish balance, try, trying to balance things, balance the positive against the negative, I, I don't think that's very productive. I don't think that's very helpful. 
because it becomes very mechanical and very forced and contrived and not sincere, right? So I don't, I don't think that's what we should be doing. Um, I rather, what I think we should be doing, uh, if, I, if I were to put myself in the position of the Western commentator on Africa, we should be guided by what I call a sympathetic understanding towards Africa and Africans, meaning that our commentaries and our writings and our, uh, our perspective on Africa should be guided and to a large degree shaped by the experiences, the anxieties, the aspirations of regular Africans. To that end, I've read commentaries that were positive, quote and unquote, and I've read commentaries of Western uh, commentators that were negative, quote and unquote, right? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't bother me. For me, it doesn't. That that's not the important thing to me. That's not. Uh, it's not the negativity, quote and unquote, or the positivity. It's how faithful are you to the actual conditions of the ground. Number one. Number two. How empathetic is your narrative? Uh, in terms of the experiences of ordinary Africans, ordinary Nigerians, as the case may be. Our narrative should be empathetic to the conditions uh, to, 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 of Africans, the experiences of Africans. If it comes off as negative, so be it. If it comes, as, uh, com comes off as positive, so be it. Um, the question of, you raised a very good question, uh, Francis, I have to tell you. And I think I'll go back to the two ideas that I mentioned, the structural argument, and the agency argument. And none of them is completely right and none of them is completely wrong. I think you come down a little bit on the side of the agency, you know, that this idea, the Africans have agency. Africans, right. like other peoples, Afri the African on the street, at what point can we say that they are imperfect beings and, mm. and that they have traits that are not uh, desirable and they engage in certain practices that are not compatible with ideas of national development uh, if you aggregate these practices, right? If it's not just one person, if you are talking about millions of people in a particular mm -hmm. country engaging in this practice, at what point do you, uh, you know, even blame some of these practices? You know, mm -hmm. do, how, do, how, do you, how do you assign culpability to individual citizens without just, do, without just blaming systems, uh, historical systems, structural systems, of oppression and exploitation uh, and, and injury without blaming just the leadership. Um, and I think that we have to do that. My position on, the, on it is that we have to acknowledge that Africans are complex, they have agency, uh, that, uh, that agency includes the capacity to do good and to do bad. That agency includes the capacity to, to, to engage in certain practices that are self-destructive, right? That are counterproductive, that in fact undermine certain national aspirations. That we have to be we have to be able to come to a position where we do that. But we 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 the problem often arises when Western commentators, not all of them, certainly not all of them, some Western commentators do that to the exclusion of the structural problems and structural and historical processes that have put Africa in the condition that it is. Like the ones that you mentioned, slavery, colonialism, you know, globalization, racism, and so on and so forth. The on, on, unequal trade, right? The trade is unequal. And Africa's marginalization in the global economy as a center of raw material production, the failure of colonial states to build industries and to 
manufactured goods in Africa. I can go on and on. So I think that's where often a lot of Africans are uncomfortable with a narrative that simply acknowledges and analyzes those problems that you mentioned. And those are, those are, those are real problems. In my country of Nigeria, uh, those types of issues are quite commonplace, you know, bribery and corruption, even on the streets, not just in governments, right? Uh, so I think that's one, one layer of the problem. The second layer that I would like to point to is that another group of Western uh, commentators tend to pathologize the problem. You know, it's a slippery slope, I think, uh, from acknowledging that Africans, even regular Africans, have faults. They engage in practices that are deceptive, that are that are fraudulent, even right. Uh, you know, I have to be, you know, just like other any other people. Just like in America, you go to the streets uh, of any big city, you are afraid of being uh, being swindled and being scammed, and there's a lot of scamming even in in every country on the internet. You know, uh, the person who is trying to sell you something, who's calling your phone, is trying to you know take you for what you've got, and that's common everywhere. So I think. The problem arises when we try to make it a unique feature of Africa. And a lot of Western commentators tend to do that. They tend to exclusively attribute it to Africa. Right. right? Secondly, they tend to pathologize it right. rather than acknowledging it as just a common human problem. You, you, people, Most people, if they have the chance to take advantage of other human beings, they will do that. We try to assign it to uh, genes. It's almost as if Africans have this gene that predisposes them to this type of behavior. And that's right. pathology. That's not a so that's that's where but, the problem. but hold on but one second just let me push back a little bit there because although I agree with you that such problems are you know exist throughout the world there are certain societies that have far less of it than others for instance in Scandinavia for whatever reason they've got the magic soft something in their water I don't know what it is <laughs> that they don't have as much corruption in a lot of you know Japanese society behaves in a certain way that just doesn't exist in the United States. I mean, they just, so some societies are, let's just focus on, if we just talk about corruption, there's many problems we could focus on, but let's take that one issue. Uh, United States is not a bastion of being uncorrupt. We've got plenty of corruption in, in the United States. But if you look on the global scale, there are metrics that measure corruption and Scandinavian states uh, do super well. So how is it that we can take whatever magic sauce that they have in Scandinavia and replicate it in not just Africa, but in other parts that are also corrupt, including parts of America? That's a great question. Um, I, I teach about this, so I should be able to answer your question. Maybe not satisfactorily, but... We've got to enroll in your course. <laughs> we need a whole semester to answer yeah. this question. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, think, I think that... Um, uh, there's a lot of African resentment towards um, Western commentaries that um, sensationalize African corruption because then it's portrayed as something that is unique to Africans. Right. That's the first part. Secondly, and that's a mistake. That's a mistake, absolutely. Secondly, <clears throat> like I said earlier on, it's not a pathology. It's a failure of character. And that's a, there's a difference. Then thirdly, I think this is this is what is going to really. Uh, that's, this is my answer to your question. I, I think the the premise of your question, I would I would push back against it a little bit because I okay. think in many cases, corruption is not the problem per se. Uh, I can give you any number of examples, the United States included, 
that with all her corruption, you know, it's where, where it is. Whatever critique you have of the United States, uh, it's a society that for the most part works, right? I mean, in True. terms of public utilities and, you know, it's an imperfect society like anyone else. But, right. uh, you know, the West is, you know, so, and you mentioned the Scandinavian countries. It's not, uh, it's not for the absence of corruption that have come to where they are. So there's a debate around that. But be that as it may, my point is that it's not corruption per se. I would, I, right, uh, it, and it's not the volume of corruption either. And I it, didn't want to. Sorry, I didn't want to imply that. I, that's why I was careful to say, let's just pick on this one issue because obviously there's multiple issues that make a society for what it is. It's it, to, again going back to the danger of a single story to to try to explain all the problems of society on one metric is is futile and and erroneous. But anyway, right. continue, sir. Right. Yeah. So, so I think that if you look at the, the the figures that we have, the statistics that we have in terms of, you know, capital outflow from Africa, I mean, fraudulent, illicit capital outflow, money leaving Africa and being dumped in Western banks and Switzerland and the U.S. and increasingly in the Middle East now, uh, it's it's a lot more. I, I, I don't have the figure off the top of my head. It's a lot more. It's like ten times, you know, uh, the, the, this money's and these monies are being, you know. And, and so, so the, the Africa is losing more money uh, than it's, it's, these monies are not going towards uh, specific things. Um, and a lot of the people who facilitate this corruption are not Africans. A lot of the institutions and entities that facilitate this corruption. So that's, that has to be part of the equation. That has to be part of the conversation. There are institutions, there are structures of the global economy that facilitate and enable this corrupt act, this "Quote and unquote African corruption uh, practices to to happen and to persist. So that's one aspect of the problem. The other aspect, which is more critical, and I think that's the answer to your question, is that as I teach, as I tell my students, it's not corruption per se that is the problem because there's corruption in every society. It's what I call the moral consequences of corruption that is the problem. Meaning that I live in the United States. I've lived in the United States for 20 years. Uh, I think I've fallen into a couple of scams. You know, I, I, I've avoided many because, you know, I've, I've gotten used to the tropes and the tricks now. And every time I, I turn on my news, the local news, I hear about one corruption or the one corrupt official uh, who's been charged with some... There's a lot of corruption everywhere, even in the United States. Sure. But guess what? When I wake up in the morning, it doesn't affect my ability to get hot water to take a bath. True. Sure. Uh, it doesn't uh, affect the road that I drive on. The road stays smooth. And a police officer is not going to pull you aside and say, hey, give me uh, $10. Right. It doesn't, for, it doesn't for affect For frivolous reason, reasons. Right. So, so I still live my life as, a, I guess, middle-class American, <laughs> Nigerian-American, in relative comfort. Whereas in Africa, you, you take the same scenario and you go to Africa, there is, it's not the same. Corruption, it's in your face. It, it, corruption literally kills people in Africa. Literally. Right. And it's it's a daily occurrence. It's something exactly. that it, yeah. it infects you all the time. Absolutely, it kills people. It prevents people from getting the medicines that they need. Right. It prevents young people from going to school because the education budget is stolen. So you have a generation of uh, Africans or Ghanaians or Cameroonians or, or or Kenyans who can't go to school. Young people who can't pursue their dreams, who can't pursue their aspirations. It kills dreams. So. So uh, the corruption is the reason why many people in Africa don't have uh, safe drinking water. They don't have roads to drive on. They don't have markets. They don't have infrastructure. 
So I say that's those are the moral consequences of corruption. And I think that's what we should focus on rather than obsess about the corruption itself, which is not to say that we shouldn't fight the corruption. We shouldn't do anything about the corruption. But you can't, to the extent that you cannot completely eliminate corruption because it's tied to human character, it's tied to human nature, you can minimize it. But a focus, an exclusive focus, an exclusive obsession with corruption itself, rather than the moral consequences of corruption, is what generates all these controversies and all these debates. And I think it's a dead-end debate, ultimately. That's my position on it. Because we should focus on uh, what corruption does. And in that way, maybe we can do something about it. We can sensitize the people, including the people that you encountered, uh, Francis, on the streets, right, that probably don't even have an awareness that what they are doing is part of the corruption profiles of their countries. They don't right. have that self-awareness that what they are doing is wrong. So, and, and I think it's only by exposing them to the moral consequences of, of this corruption, whether at the governmental level or at the individual street level, that I think we can actually finally generate the necessary outrage against this evil and to try to solve it and to try to combat it. Because I think it's very distracting. A lot of Africans you know, have this resentment towards narratives that pathologize and sensationalize Af corruption as quintessentially or uniquely African. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why that is the case, because we tend to focus more on the, oh, the volume, the volume. Africa is more corrupt than anywhere else. There's more corruption, uh, which is not even accurate when if you, if you look at the figures. But, you know, uh, yeah. But if you, if you look at the moral consequences or the moral hazards that arise from widespread corruption and say we need to focus on that as opposed to the corruption itself you know in other words let's let's if we if we understand the moral hazard that comes with that we might be able to fix things but i don't think i mean africans yes you they may not be self-aware of how they're implicit in uh, in a in a where where they're kind of involved in this cycle and this moral consequences that occur but still i don't think there's anybody in africa who will say that corruption doesn't have moral consequences i think there is universal agreement among africans that if they had a choice if they could just push a button all africans would say yes get rid of corrupt not all of them some of them are benefiting but widespread amount of society if they said yes we can convert to sweden at a touch of a button, almost all Africans would say, yes, let's push that button and let's become Sweden overnight. But it, so I think they know that corruption is bad and it leads to all these ancillary effects. But it still raises the question, how do you, how does a country become like Sweden? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that the, the, the simple answer, there are two answers. One is that a country can become like Sweden despite its corruption, or in spite of its corruption. It's, it is possible. Like the United States? Yes, like the United States, like uh, like Korea. Not mm -hmm. the other Korea, but, you know. And, right. South Korea. Like South Korea, and, you know, and so on. Uh, so several examples, like India, India, you know, mm -hmm. and so on. But, but, that, but that, that's, that's neither here nor there. But I, I think your first uh, question is a good one. It's a, it's a great one. I mean, Africans, yes, they, everybody is aware that corruption is a bad thing. And something needs to be done about it. Uh, but most Africans, you know, that I've encountered, most people that I've talked to, you know, uh, it's the other person's corruption 
Right. Destroying the nation. <laughs> you're it's right. Not my you're corruption. right. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Right. It's it's Mr. A or Mrs. X's uh, corruption. That's that's what is responsible for right. keeping the nation down. Not my. Right. So, but I, but I think that that's that's where work needs to be done because no no African would admit that their type of corruption or their kind of corruption is the reason why there is no medicine in the village hospital. Right. And people go there and they can't be treated for common ailments and children die as a result. No, Nobody wants to admit that. But that's that's where we need to focus on. We need to make it so graphic. We need to, so that people know that everyone is culpable. There's complicity on many levels. And that complicity can go around. And that uh, no matter how small your act of corruption is, like you said, it, it generates a circle. Uh, and I think that's where the emphasis ultimately needs to lie, because I think the United States, take the United States, for example, it's a prosperous country by all indications, right. but it's prosperous in spite of the corruption in the country. Right. So I think that in Africa, the problem is that the economy is so small as well. You have to acknowledge that the economy is the size of the economy itself is so small that to use a popular cliche, every little corruption shows it's magnified. Right. Mm -hmm. It, it magnifies it. Whereas the United States is a trillion, multi-trillion dollar economy. Uh, you know, no amount of corruption is ever going to bring the government down or is ever going to take away my hot water or, 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 or destroy my roads or keep medicine out of the hospital for me and my children. No, it's never going to happen. I mean, so I think we need to also acknowledge Africa's marginal economic situation as well in, in terms of the overall global economy. It's, it's, Africa is such a small, for, for a continent that size with that many people, uh, its share of the global economy is so small. And that's why every little act of corruption takes a devastating moral toll uh, on the people of the, of, of the earth. And that's, that should be part of our analytical uh, toolkit and, and, and the, the overall picture. And I think that's the nuance that I would bring into that conversation on corruption, for instance. Fair enough. And speaking of nuance, Professor, there's one issue that in our conversation that you've said that has left me confused, and I want you to clarify if you could, please. And that is part of the article made it sound like you want some sort of balance. But at the same time, during our conversation, you said something along the lines of a piece that is, you know, positive here, one negative point there, positive, you know, super balanced, you know, five positive things, five negative things. It becomes like almost artificial and yeah, just, it sounds just doesn't feel true in a sense. It seems too artificially constructed. And, but that seems to contradict your desire to have nuance to, to say, Hey, we need to have some level of balance. So can you please clarify what you meant by that? and explain yeah. that a little bit more. That's excellent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a fair point. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I think balance is important. Nuance is important. But my position is that don't stop there. That's, that's not enough. Uh, balance for its own sake is problematic as well. Nuance for its own sake, for its own mechanical uh, sake of just trying to, as it were, balance the books, as it were, <laughs> to, right, right. to use an accounting analogy here. Uh, is, is problematic as well because it's not sincere. Like, you know, it's contrived right. for all these reasons. So, so, now, so, I think now I get you. Now, sorry to interrupt, but I, yeah. I think maybe the analogy that will bring this home to all the listeners is I want to take some nuance on Hitler and Idi Amin 
and just say, okay, there's five great things about Hitler or 10 great things about Hitler and 10 bad things about Hitler. 10 great things about Idi Amin, 10 bad things about Idi Amin. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is when you've taken the balance a little bit too far. And sometimes you got to take a stand and say, these were bad people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You got it. That's absolutely. And you, you have to go where your instincts, because you are an expert. You are a researcher. You are you, you you are a traveler. Your travel dossier is 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 so authoritative. You are an authority on this place. You know it so well. You've traveled. You've interacted with people. You should be confident enough in your material and in your expertise and in your experience to make pronouncements where your instincts and your facts and your material lead you to do that. And you should be able to to make. And it's okay. And Africans appreciate that. Africans are sensible enough. Yes, including inter- African interlocutors, interlocutors are sensible enough to distinguish between yes. a racist, yes. sort of tendentiously yes. racist commentary that is just negative and a, a, a sincere, a sincere, sincere analysis. Exactly, analysis. Right. And, and I, 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 to, yeah. I agree with you 100%. And that's actually one thing that irks me a bit whenever I speak critically of Africa to like when I was traveling to all 54 African countries for five years, I obviously interacted constantly with Africans. And whenever I criticized it, they always nodded and, and kind of like, yeah. And then maybe throw some more on there and just, like, but <laughs> right. if I talk to um, people who have very limited exposure of Africa and unfortunately, again, white people in the United States who just bristle at any kind of critique of Africa because they see it as a racist thing as opposed to Africans who just say, well, you're calling a spade a spade. That's the reality of our situation. We've got some problems that we have and and thanks for pointing out the good stuff, but you're right about that bad stuff. And, yeah. and that's what struggles. So I wrote a book about traveling three years in Eastern Europe and it's called The Hidden Europe. And when I wrote it, I would make fun of the Serbians. I would point out wonderful things about the Bulgarians. I would critique the Russians. And I did it all just, again, like you said, based on an authoritative travel to all these countries and interacting and deep research and all that kind of stuff. And I never felt like I was tiptoeing or walking on eggshells when I was writing that book. I was just like, I'm going to tell it as it is, the good, bad, and the ugly. And guess what? Most Eastern Europeans loved it and Americans in general like the book. But now when I'm writing about Africa, <laughs> it's a different beast and it's such, and I feel like the specter over me <laughs> that again, not coming from the Africans themselves, mm-hmm. but rather from uh, often white people in the United States who just dislike it when another white person critiques Africa. And that actually brings us all the way back to the very beginning of your article, which said, you know, these white academics pointing out some obvious problems of Nigeria were lambasted for their viewpoints. And had they been black, had you written the article, (laughs) another American, but happens to be a Nigerian of Nigerian descent, had you written it, probably would have gone unnoticed. <laughs> precisely, precisely. And, and, I, and I think you, 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 you've hit on a, on, a, on, a, on a critical part of the problem here, which is what I, I like to see as a, an atmosphere of, uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a real unfortunate situation because it's a debate ender, it shuts down debate in most, in most right. cases. 
it's this atmosphere of liberal liberal guilt. I like to call it liberal right. guilt. Absolutely, yeah. Which is it, it? It becomes a burden that we all have to go up against. That that kind of is this unspoken, unseen burden that weighs us down, and uh, that kind of structures even without us knowing, without us acknowledging it. You know, it's almost it structures our narrative and it impedes what we can say, what we can't say, because you don't want to be called certain names. You don't want to be called out. Uh, uh, to be to be to be told that you are essentially being patronizing and condescending, you are being you are being racist, and it's mostly yes, these white Western gatekeepers, narrative gatekeepers, who do that kind of work, right? right. <laughs> yeah, they, they, I mean, I've, I've encountered it myself, and they do that type of work. Uh, if I like you said, if I wasn't black, <laughs> I, would, uh, I would I would encounter it a lot more often. Obviously. Yes, you yeah. certainly would. <laughs> but, but, but but that's the thing. But because and and that that points to the. Uh, to, to the to the different audiences for what Western uh, uh, authors and Western uh, critics write, Western Western commentators, the different audiences, the different receptions that they get, uh, and the different reactions. So that there's there are people in the West, and they are very powerful people, and you know they, they're in the media, they are in academia, they're in the politics, uh, who see it as their as their their life's mission, you know, to keep white Westerners from arrogantly and haughtily making judgments and pronouncements on non-Western societies, right? right? right. And sometimes it, it's positive. Sometimes it's well-intentioned. There's nothing wrong with it. It's it, because they've called out racists, actual racists and actual people, you know, sure. arrogant jerks who, yes. who, who spew nonsense about this, uh, about, about non-Western parts of the world. And that's, a, that's commendable work. But but sometimes it's they, they, they don't know where to stop and there's no <laughs> no boundary so that everyone every white person who takes a mildly critical stance <laughs> on, on Western societies becomes uh, the collateral damage of collateral victim <laughs> of that, uh, this, this this outrage this uh, outrage that is produced by we, uh, white liberal Western uh, guilt you know and right. it's frustrating for us Africans because we can sort of watch and say. Wait a minute, but this guy hasn't said anything that doesn't work <laughs> with the reality on the ground. Are they supposed to lie? Are they supposed to right. say things? Are they supposed to embellish the truth just to uh, to come off as being humble and not being arrogant and not being all of these right. things in the West? That wouldn't be sincere. That wouldn't be faithful to what's going on on the ground. And that wouldn't fly with a lot of Africans either because they can't see themselves in your story. The greatest tra- tragedy, as I tell people, that can happen to a writer, to a commentator, to a scholar, to a, a journalist, I don't care what your vocation is, is for your subjects not to be able to identify themselves and their conditions and their experiences in what you write. That's the, that's that by far, that's the, the, the greatest tragedy than right. caring about, you know, what the, you know, the, so the, 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 the narrative or discursive police in your society will do to you. So I think I, I acknowledge what you said. And I think that's where the, much of the problem is, is coming from. Uh, you know, uh, there's also this, uh, and I think it's both on, it's not just on the left of American politics, of Western politics, it's also on the right. There are people on the right, for instance, who feel that it is their job and it is their duty uh, to protect Africans, right? They take a paternalistic view of right. Africa. It's their job to protect uh, Africans uh, from abuse, from uh, denigrating comments. And so therefore, Africans are their friends and they take this view that it's almost like uh, uh, you know, the, the colonial frame of um, uh, social Darwinism, right? You know, it's our job to protect this 
it, it infantilizes Africans. Then you have people on the left who, out of this sense of empathy and sympathy for Africans, uh, think that it is also their job to prevent any kind of criticism, any type, no matter how mild and no matter how well-intentioned and sincere and accurate uh, to be made against Africans or their governments because it is automatically put into this box of this is racist, this is arrogant, and who are you as a white Westerner? What do you know about Africa? To pronounce, to make pronouncements. And it is immediately connected to this colonial uh, right. racist history of you know colonialism, of portraying Africans in certain ways, all of this stereotypical. But, but we, can, we, can, we, can be, we can make those distinctions. We need to make those distinctions. You know, Francis Tapon writing on Africa, it's not the same as the, the journals of Frederick Lugard or the journals of uh, John Bolton or the journals of Mungo Park, you know, way back in the, in the, in the late 19th century or David Livingstone. I mean, these are two different narrative strands. And, and I think sometimes we conflate them. And that, that's where the problem arises, in my opinion. Very well said. Well, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, uh, Professor Ochono. And I wanted to commend you for that article. And I thank you so much for your open-mindedness in this discussion. And I definitely, definitely want to send you an early copy of my book before it gets published to get your expert that. opinion, because yeah. you're exactly the type of audience that I would, I'm writing for. Somebody who appreciates nuance, who appreciates lively debate, um, who and that's exactly what I want. I know, obviously, I will never be able to please everybody. That's utterly impossible in any book, and yeah. certainly a book about Africa. But I, I do really appreciate your encouragement to stay true to who I am when I write it and not to censor myself too greatly just to appease a few extremists. Well, thank you. Thank you. I look forward to uh, reading the book. Absolutely. Wonderful. I will put a link to both your Africa as a Country profile as well as your Vanderbilt profile for people to learn more about Moses Ochono, professor at Vanderbilt University. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And that ends this episode of the WanderLearn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we've talked about, go to WanderLearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F Tapon is always my social media username. My website is ftapon.com. Do you want to leave me an anonymous voicemail where you can make a comment or ask a question? Then go to speakpipe.com slash ftapon. Furthermore, if you'd like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. Now, five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.